Oh, well. Good evening, everyone. Welcome along to the first instalment of Banquet, the Beatitudes edition. Yeah, I reckon. Um, so it's going to be a fantastic year. Um, we've got a lot, uh, a lot of stuff that's going to come out. I think um, from from the from the panel and the speakers and everyone that's um, that's involved is a real air of excitement and anticipation for what it is that um, God is going to do through these evenings. So we're really excited to to get into it. Um, so you'll see uh, here we've got banquet. I'm not sure if you guys can bring it up. Oh no, there we go. The B attitudes. Um, the B attitudes. Welcome to banquet. Nice. And so we've got here. You'll see B and attitudes separated out. Now, this is not just a play on words. Actually, this is really. Um, zooming in on the heartbeat of what we're going to be looking at throughout the course of this year. The be attitudes, the being attitudes, the attitudes of being, the attitudes that are to define every single follower of Christ. It's Christ's attitude. It's his way of thinking. It's his way of operating. It's the intention of his heart that we're going to be diving deep into. Um, so, it's, an, it's going to be an exciting time, um, and it's going to be a full participation event every evening that we meet. Yeah, I reckon. So you're going to see some new faces on the panel. Um, you're going to have some new speakers kicking off the night, sharing um, golden nuggets of truth that they've um, discovered through diving into the Word. You're going to be hearing testimony from people um, as to what it is that God's been doing in them through these sessions um, and in their lives. So it's going to be a real cool time. Um, and uh, like Greg's email that he sent out this week, the Beatitudes, be there. Did you like that? I like that. <laughs> All right, so I thought I might just set the scene this evening um, for what we're going to be looking at over the next little while. And um, the Beatitudes are found in Matthew chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And you may as well put a permanent bookmark in Matthew chapter 5. Um, there is a danger that we spend the entire year looking at uh, one little set of verses, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> danger, yeah. When we get into it, you'll see why it's dangerous. <laughs> dangerous to the flesh. All right, so to give you a bit of context, in, in Matthew chapter 4, now this is right at the very start of Jesus' ministry. And there's been a number of prophecies about this man, Jesus, who finally steps onto the scene. And the title in the NASB is Ministry in Galilee. And it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news spread about him throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, um, from the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So we see here right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he, he steps onto the scene with a um, pretty Big bravado, really. He's, he's doing miracles, and all of a sudden, the crowds are flocking towards him. No one's seen someone move 
and this kind of power and authority before. Um, but from here we flow into this awesome passage in Matthew chapter 5 um, called the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. And Jesus is really transitioning from people who have watched and observed these miraculous displays of power and he gathers in the disciples. I'll just find uh, what it says here. It says... Um, In the, Luke's, in the Luke passage, it says he turned his gaze to his disciples and began to teach. In Matthew, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened up his mouth and began teaching them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and, say, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus is drawing a crowd and people are marveling at these external displays of power. And Jesus turns his gaze from everything that's going on and, um, and the hustle and bustle of an activity that's happening. And he turns his gaze to his disciples and says, guys, let me tell you what this is actually all about. Let me open up the hood um, of my life and, and show you the operating system that I live in and through and by. Let me take you from the, these external um, these external things, and let me show you the inner world that I live in and from, because I want you to live in from this, this world too. And so he saw the crowds and, and came up on the mountain and sat down and opened his mouth and began to teach. Now, one of the questions that I have for the banquet panel later on is what does it mean to, to teach? Because Jesus, when he teaches, he doesn't teach like a university lecturer. He teaches more than just facts and figures, more than history, more than good ideas, more than good concepts. He teaches what, from what the scriptures say in, um, in power and in authority. People were amazed at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. And then in the next breath, the one who they were amazed at, they were trying to kill why? Because all of a sudden they heard a word and a kind of teaching that penetrated them on the inner core. And that's what these Beatitudes do. They take you from the external and all of a sudden they come and address the issues of the heart, which we know is the wellspring of life. And so Jesus, he says um, in, uh, in Matthew 11, I think it is, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Now he had just been ministering in miracles and in signs of wonders and he had been freeing people from all kinds of affliction and disease. And so he was giving them physical rest from their physical bodies. But in Matthew 11, he goes on and he says, Now, now that you've, now that you've, you've received rest, now learn from me so that you can find rest for your soul. Now in this passage, the words rest is different in both places. The first word, rest, means freedom from the world around you, freedom from pressure and strain and anxiety and turmoil. Come to me and I'll give you rest. The crowds were coming to him and he was giving them a kind of rest. But then he says, now learn from me. And here in the Beatitudes, Jesus is changing gear. He's changing gear from a rest that's external to a rest that's to be internal. So the second word rest doesn't mean freedom from the things going on around you. The word literally means in the Greek, inner tranquility. Come to me. Now, learn from me and I'll give you rest for your souls. I've got a kind of teaching that's not just going to change your thinking, but it's going to change your heart. I've got a kind of rest that's actually going to enter, enter into the inside of you and do a work in your soul. So that's the, the scene for these Beatitudes. It's, they're talking about inner attitudes, the reality of Christ in us that we can live in and from. It's massive, hey? So this evening we're going to dive straight into the first Beatitude. In Matthew 5 verse 3 it says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now it seems a bit of an oxymoron, blessing, and poverty, right? Wouldn't you say? And, you know, I, I read a really interesting article a little while back in The Economist, which is a secular magazine, and it talks about business and politics um, going on around the world. And there was this fascinating article, and the commentator was talking about the church in, in South America. I think it might have been Argentina. And the church is big business over there, so they were reporting on it, not for the reasons that we would talk about the body of Christ gathering together. He was talking about the business side of it, and he said, and this, this commentator was baffled by what he saw on the outside. And he talked about what he observed rising up in the church in South America, and he says there seems to be two different strands. He says there's the Catholics, and they were all about voluntary poverty. They thought that being poor and giving away all their possessions and making themselves nothing was the way into life. And so they were all about voluntary poverty. And he observed and he's like, but these guys are miserable. And he said, but, but there's a new strain of Christianity that's been springing up. And he called them the charismatics. And he said, these guys are all about this life. They're all about blessing. They're all about your best life now. And he, in essence, he said, but man, these guys are full of it. <laughs> they're like talking about this blessing, but yet their lives are just as messed up as everyone else's. Poverty and blessing seems like two sides of a coin, right? 
Seems like a living contradiction, an oxymoron. How can these things be reconciled? Well, actually the gospel is not about poverty. And it's not about material possession or material blessing. It's about inner life. And Jesus here in the first beatitude, he says this, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus is talking about poverty, he's not talking as these, um, these Catholic priests are talking about physical poverty. It, says, it doesn't say physical poverty, it says poverty of spirit. Now, wouldn't you think as Christians we would be looking for wealth of spirit? Wouldn't that seem like, shouldn't we be wealthy in spirit? Shouldn't that be the way that we enter into kingdom life? Maybe poverty in the world, but wealth of spirit. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because it's, poverty is not physical poverty. It's actually, he's talking about true humility. And he's saying that poverty of spirit, brokenness of spirit, is the only way to enter in and live in and through this kingdom life. My friend, my good friend Luke Harris, um, has been the only person that I know has been able to put uh, English words to what this is. It's called true humility. <laughs> true humility. <laughs> It's humility that is true. It's humility that has come from the Holy Spirit. It's not brokenness on the outside. It's brokenness on the inside. Now, David cries out in Psalm 51. Um, I'm sure you all know the story. He's gone through a pretty rocky time in his life. And he cries out to God and he says, God, he's come to the place where he's finally found the way to life. And it's taken brokenness. But the brokenness that you hear cried out in the psalm is not actually a physical brokenness. And it's not even a brokenness that's come from his messed up marriage. It's brokenness that's come from a man who's finally found a place of surrender and humility. It's brokenness of spirit. And he says this, he says, you don't delight in sacrifices of burnt offerings, or I would give it, because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Now, David had gone through some pretty intense physical brokenness, but what is amazing about David's story is not his physical brokenness, it's the brokenness of spirit that he found Otherwise, he would have just been another man getting into adultery and messing up his marriage with his wife. And we've got more than enough of those people walking the earth today. But there's very few people, it's narrow, Jesus says, that's the way to life. And there's few that find it, who find this place of true humility, who find this place of true brokenness. That is an inner place. But it's a place for all of us as the body of Christ to find. And it's not defined by your physical situation. You don't need to commit adultery to find brokenness of spirit. Sometimes getting out of your comfort zone and hard things happening can propel you into a place where you cry out to Him. But there still needs to be a transaction from heaven that takes place where something within you changes. 
And I've shared about a, um, a, a young man who used to live with me who was a homeless guy. And his life was broken and everything that he touched was broken. Yet the, but he never found a place of brokenness of spirit. Why? Because he always thought that he was right even in the midst of the mess that his life was in. And he was never able to receive and accept instruction that would set him free from himself and having him live in a kind of humility and and a humility of spirit, a new and living way. So I've got my fantastic panel up here this evening to, to dive into what this poverty of spirit is all about and what the promise is attached to it, those who will uh, those who inherit and receive this kingdom life within them. So without further ado, we've got a few questions that we're going to work towards um, this evening. All right, so question number one that we have for our panel is what does it mean to be taught by Jesus? We see in this passage that Jesus sat down and he taught his disciples. What, what does it mean to be taught by Jesus? Sounds like a Noel question to me. <laughs> I think there was a, a, a last year we talked about the teaching, and you know that there are two kinds of teaching. You have the the te- true teaching, and then the teaching that is the natural way of things. Um, to be taught by Jesus is to have an encounter with Him first and foremost and to have an encounter with him will always result in change it's just like putting your hand on on the top of a Bunsen burner and claim that nothing has happened because you are not (laughs) just meeting a person you're meeting God himself and so when God speaks he gives of himself he gives of his breath you know uh, Mel shared about it you know, you can't utter a word without breath. And so we give, it's life-giving. It's when Jesus speaks, it's always a life-giving thing. And so when, when, um, when you see, and so when he speaks, he gives of himself, life comes into you, and then you are transformed firstly in the inward, and then you start breathing, you start walking, and then you start acting differently. Um, the Spirit because it's a spirit thing, it will need the physical means or medium to, to, to work because we are in a physical world. But even though it uses a physical medium, the results are worlds apart. Um, and so, I'm, yeah, so um, it doesn't mean you could have a mental agreement, but, you know, it's if God speaks, you know that it is him who speaks. And so how do you know? You will know. You will know. Because, because you'll know where it comes from. And in, in when he speaks, when he teaches, yourself is the recipient. It's always the recipient. But that's the only role of the self right there. Because he has no input on, what he, on the revelation. He has no input on the process itself. And that's very different when it comes to the natural teaching. Um, one of the things that uh, stands out for me about Jesus as a teacher is, um, you know, it says that the word of God is living and active. 
sharper than a two-edged sword. And so when he comes and speaks, he's not just saying things that sound good, he's actually going for the jugular. <laughs> um, the case in point is um, the, the rich young ruler who identifies Jesus as a teacher and he says, good teacher, what must I do? And, uh, and Jesus does what he does and, and lets him have it, you know. And, and really, not out of spite or anything, not to show him up, but because he, he's going straight to the heart of the matter, you know. Um, and I see this in my own life, that there's no one who knows us like God does. He's intimately acquainted with everything that we're up to. And he can teach you in the smallest or greatest of moments, you know, where you're... Or anything, everything, like you say, like like Greg prayed before. You know, if we can live like every oppor- every opportunity, every situation is an opportunity for growth. For what when what we're not in is exposed. It's not exposed to shame us. It's exposed to bring us into. Um, yeah, I th- I think Jesus is such a revolutionary as well in the way that he brings things. You know, he does. He's not. He's not a conformist by any means. He doesn't say what you're expecting him to say. He doesn't say the the things that are wrote. He will quite often come out of left field and just bring something which, and, and you know, keeping on the theme of teacher, is a different perspective. He brings a different perspective to open your eyes to a to a new way. You know, it was Jesus that that was challenging the public idea of wives you know this is how you've lived you think that you can sell a wife and have another you know he says man if you're living like that you've got it wrong he says if you look at a woman to lust you've committed adultery and he's bringing something which is absolutely new and he's teaching him in process and it's it's revolutionary and um he's still the same and i think when you when you look at what it is that he's actually teaching it should be so. It should be. It should be so um, massive that that it makes you think: How on earth can an earthly man? Or how how can you possibly be taught how to be poor in spirit? You know, you can teach maths and English and science. Um, you can teach all of these different things, but how do you teach someone to be poor in spirit? So when you see what it, what is it that he's actually what, what is it that he's actually teaching them? He's not teaching them an idea or a concept. He's teaching them what it means to live from his life. And in order to do that, they need to be able to, re- to receive a substance within them to be able to live out what it is that he's asking of them. Eh? So all of a sudden, there's a, a, a teaching of another kind that's required um, um, that's beyond words. Hey? I think the first thing you need to realise before you can be taught is you need to realise he comes from a, another place than you. Mm. And so that's clear through scripture. It says, um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. It says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, which is what Noel is saying. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who his own did not receive him. 1 Corinthians says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. And so Jesus 
states before the teaching of the Beatitudes that there needs to be a complete renewing of your mind because I'm from a completely different realm than you. But I'm standing in front of you. And you cannot understand anything I'm about to say until you get born of the Spirit. So if we're not born of the Spirit, you cannot understand anything he says. So he can't teach you because he's teaching from a completely different place than you are living from. And you're always going to understand him from your place, but he speaks from another place. So it's like someone coming from another nation speaking to you a language in their language. You've got no idea what they're saying. So you'll try and interpret and make up something. And so this is the problem because we need to be of the Spirit for him to teach us. And that's part of the mystery. Um, because, you know, man, he came and no one knew who he was. No one could understand him. He stood and spoke and everyone's looking at him like, oh, you're talking about X. He says, I'm talking about Y. So there's no way you can grasp the Beatitudes until you become the Spirit. And that's where we need to start to me, I, I see it almost like as, you know, there needs to be, we're talking about being born again. <clears throat> and I think that the natural man, the man that was born into Adam, has no ability to live from the life of Christ, you know? And I think that's why we need to be born again. As, and it's, it's almost like, you know, like, like a cat has no capacity to drive a car, brush their teeth, do the most natural and basic human things. Why? Because they're not trying hard enough? Because they're not putting discipline in place? Because they're not structuring their lives? Because they're not... No, because they are not a human being and don't have the capacity to live out of the life of a human being because they're not one. And so to me, this is like first step is... You know what John says. You must be born again. You know there must be a new. You must enter into this new kingdom life to be able to live out of um, these beatitudes and everything else that we see contained in Scripture. So, all right. So, question number two, I put here: How does Jesus define blessing in the beatitudes? We see here. I think it's the. the there's about nine Beatitudes, and in each one, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. What does he mean by blessing? Is he talking about being better off? What, what is he talking about? Yeah, he is. Better off? Yeah, absolutely. Am I better off for knowing him? Yep. Am I living from that better off life? Yep. Am I coming into the fullness of the life he promised me? Yes. So if I'm poor in spirit because there's been an outworking of going from pride in spirit, breaking, to now I'm poor in spirit. And so unless we transition from those two things, once again, we're still proud of spirit. So the promise for me is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so there is everything contained in the kingdom life that he brought which was in himself is on offer for that life to be in me and the way in is I must become poor in spirit 
So it's of the spirit. Once again, it's not of the earth. The earth is of the spirit of pride. It's wisdom is of the world is full of pride. I don't need God. Mm. It's me on my own. I, I'm self-sufficient. What's the point? I don't need. So that has to be broken before there is actually a chance to be blessed from receiving the kingdom life. And so everything is contained in the Son. Mm. He is the example of what humility looks like. He emptied himself. So in Christ is the richness of life. And so as that kingdom, which is in Christ, because Christ is in me, and he's the king of that kingdom, starts to develop because of my surrender, then I'm the recipient of a kingdom life. And so if you think about what's in heaven and the life of heaven coming into the vessel of the disciple, I'm the recipient of that life. So it's the full life in Christ. It's funny what we think of as well when we think of the word blessing. So we're like, oh, God, bless me, bless me, you know. And and typically you might look at someone that's wealthy, let's say, and go, oh, they're blessed. Or if they have commodities or whatever they're blessed and yet Jesus says if you're not faithful with that which is least who will commit to your trust the true riches and so this man from another realm who knows what true riches really are when he says that you're blessed he's not saying you're going to be financially better off which is sometimes how we interpret it and this is where he turns up and is speaking from a different perspective in an eye-opening you know in an eye-opening way if we can hear it um, he's talking about these true riches that we we can be the recipients of these true riches, you know. And it says in um, says in Hebrews that beyond contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. You know, talking about Abraham and Melchizedek, and when Christ is talking about us being blessed, this greater is offering us the blessing, the true riches, you know, which is this heavenly heavenly wealth. Um, yes, um, oftentimes when we hear um, blessing and blessed, o- like what Chris said, automatically we, we think about uh, someone who has, you know, an, a positive outcome, you know, um, um, financial um, wealth and good relationships and, you know, a, a, a prosperous life in the physical. But what we're coming to realize more and more is that the physical is not a measure of the spiritual. It's never can be used as a measure for oneness. It can never be used as a measure for intimacy. It can never be used as a measure for uh, the knowledge of God. Um, when the true blessing is actually God himself. And so when you, when you look at it that way, you know, when, when God told Abraham, you know, I am your true reward, he was not speaking about material stuff, and Abraham knew that within his heart. It took him 25 years to realize that, because it <laughs> took him 25 years until the moment when God spoke that, gave that realization, the, the year immediately after he had Isaac. And then the year after, maybe, when God asked him to offer Isaac, and he readily gave it. It is coming to understand that your greatest blessing is he himself. So God is both the source and the substance of what you're looking for. Just as he is the source of peace, he is peace himself. He is the source of love. He is love. 
himself personified and he is the source of blessing he is blessing himself and I think Ab Abraham was a wealthy man eh, all throughout his life you know and um but but his wealth his, like you're saying, the, the blessing and the wealth wasn't just a material possession, but there was something that he possessed that was much greater than that. Eh? You know, so much so that he was able, it says he was he was able to offer up his own son. You know, knowing that everything that he had wasn't actually his own possession, because he had had received a greater possession, which was Christ. Eh? I was just I was just thinking, you know, like just when you read it and just as it is, blessed are the poor in the spirit. So once again, if if you're of the spirit, you know what you're blessed of. And you don't get entrapped in things that the guys have just said. Because you're of the spirit. So all this is of the spirit. You know, here in the spirit. My words are spirit. So the more you're of the Spirit of God, you understand what he's saying, and so you don't have that mindset that it's all about riches of natural wealth because you're of the Spirit. Part of that is the evidence of actually being of the flesh. So you hear through the flesh rather than hearing through the Spirit and go the wrong way. And so this is where we have to be a people of the Spirit. So when the Spirit speaks... You hear what the Spirit is saying because, you know, like, like how I answered that, like, I'm a blessed guy. But what do I mean by that when I say that in the Spirit? You know, because you can take it 10 different ways. And so we need to be able to hear in the Spirit. And if we hear in the Spirit, there's no confusion. When you speak, confusion fades because you hear what He's saying. And so you're not tripped up going down a pathway thinking that guy said that. He said, no, he, said, he or she said that, but you didn't hear in the spirit. And this is why it's, we've got to be the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's a different kingdom to the world. Everything about it is completely opposite. How, how um, when, when you read the, the first nine or whatever it was, you said, Sam, there's, they're just to me, they're so loaded with promise. And and it's so like I was saying before, so counterculture that these things you would go, what's blessed about being poor in spirit? It just naturally doesn't make any sense. You go, this is the naturally this is the thing that I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. What are you talking about? Blessed are the meek. Doesn't I don't want to be meek? You know what I mean? Naturally, I don't want to be meek. And yet he goes, in me, these are the doorway to life. The very things that you would naturally run from are, are the vehicle for this transformation and this life to be found in you. Therefore, you are blessed in them, in me. Um, the second part of the verse, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What, what's the kingdom of heaven? And what does it mean to inherit the, the kingdom of heaven? Sorry, this is an off-script question. Yeah, <laughs> so the king of the kingdom is Christ. 
we know wherever Christ is, his kingdom is. So the kingdom in these terms is not a geographical place. It's about dominion. It's about rulership. So if Christ, his dominion, wherever his dominion is, his rulership is, and with that comes his kingdom. Okay. So if he is Lord of your life and ruler of your heart and your mind, his kingdom is there. So his kingdom contains everything about himself and the place in which he lives from, who he is, the way in which it all functions. The prayer is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom, which is where God, you can say God is the king of his kingdom, Jesus is the king of his kingdom, heaven is this kingdom realm that is coming to earth. But it's coming firstly through a spiritual way. Okay? Because he's not coming to redeem this earth, this earth is perishing. But he's going to come and set up his kingdom in the hearts and the minds of the church, you and I. This is why lordship is critical. And this is why being broken of spirit is essential if you're going to have this attitude within you that Christ had. And so he's going to establish, so it's the kingdom of God, it's the king and his kingdom coming into the geographical place called your heart and your mind through the power of the Holy Spirit. You live then from having kingdom values. So one of the first kingdom values, attitudes of being, is you are humble of spirit. And the humble of spirit defines all the other eight. So if we haven't been broken and have a contrite spirit that David said, then, sorry, but you probably won't have these other beatitudes in you. Because the first one opens the door for all the other eight. But you can't get into that without the Spirit of God, who does the work in you. So God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the... Why does he oppose the proud? Because you say, I don't need you. Let me just read you this. I found this before while Sam was speaking. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the 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 lowly... But the haughty he knows from afar. So he knows those that are proud of spirit, but he knows them from afar. Why? Because you actually keep him at that distance. And this is why you can't be uncovered. So you have to be you can't be covered. So he comes and he wants to establish his kingdom, his rulership, his dominion, everything that's in the Christ. In us. And so we become a humble people, but in the spirit. That's where true authority is found. Humble people in the spirit are confused with arrogance, being arrogant by the body. Humble people in the spirit are the ones that carry the authority of the spirit. And that's where it's all found. So you have the dominion, you give dominion, you give your heart, you give your mind over to the Lord of Lords and he goes to work and he builds his kingdom in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Same thing. And I think that's so massive, eh? You know, because I think humility can be heard as something that it's not, you know, in the sense that I think, like, you know, false, hum- like, false humility, I think, like... To me, to me, the the difference is that, <coughs> excuse me, um, 
is that if someone says, look, you've done this so well, and you say, oh, no, 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 it was, you know, righty, righty, right. And that's actually not humility because you're actually not being honest about something that's true, you know. Whereas humility, I think, is, is the ability to, to actually genuinely see your state before God and be honest and real about it. And if he's done a divine work within you, why would you not proclaim that from the rooftops, you know? So the, the, the issue here is, is genuineness, you know? And if there's been a brokenness of spirit that's happened, you don't need to shy away from that because you don't take acknowledgement and glory from yourself because you know that the source of it hasn't come from you, it's come from him, you know? That's it. Do we understand that there's two messages, not one? That's a question. Okay, so there's the message of what? What, what was the message John the Baptist brought? Of, right, what was the message Jesus brought? So two messages wrapped up in one, yeah? So we're talking about the kingdom of God now the church generally seems to stick in this message of repentance of sin so you can actually confess your sin Jesus saves you of your sin and have no concept of the kingdom message that's why Jesus said repent because the kingdom is now at hand okay John said this guy's coming make way for the Lord He's bringing with him another message. Jesus said, up, or the, Jesus said, John, up until John, it was the law and the prophets. Then it's a new message called the kingdom of God. Okay? Now this kingdom's a buzzword in the church, but we need to actually understand what it really is because, and where it's established. Because a lot of people think it's just seeing signs and wonders. And the kingdom signs and wonders, you know, seeing healings. And that's part of it. But it's in us. It's in you and I. So there are two messages, but they're actually one message. And this is why the, the Jews or the Israelites struggle, because this is why he asked, was John's baptism, where was it from? You see, if it's from heaven, they have to receive the one coming, which is the one they rejected, the kingdom message. But the thing is, you and I can receive the message of sin, cleanse of sin, and actually reject the kingdom message and not know you're doing it. You've got to get a whole new way of operation. You get this for free. Don't have to change at all. I accept you as you are. Come to me. Now you're going to work out your salvation with me. The spirit and truth is going to go to work on your heart and your mind so you never are the same person again. That's the fulfillment of the kingdom in the church on the earth. So you and I, the Revelation says, are becoming priests in a kingdom. We're becoming the vessel that God has established to see his manifold wisdom come into the earth. It's the kingdom message because we're kingdom. And where are we ambassadors from? The kingdom, not earth, heaven on earth. So we're really all where? Seated where? In heaven, serving him on earth. But anyone in heaven tonight? No. So where is he talking about? He's talking about in you. 
You have heaven in you, and you see and hear from heaven and can minister heaven into the earth. Now, when people have no concept of that, this is where love is for people. This is where compassion and patience is because you go, people have no concept of who they really are. And I'm an administer of another kingdom, which starts in humility. That's amazing. And then we get to... we get to minister the love of the Father, the grace of the Father, the mercy of the Father, the peace and the joy and the hope. But it's all associated with a kingdom message. Hence, that's why we have to lay our lives down and allow Him to go to work. If you resist Him because you can, you resist the message He brings in the building. I want to build you into what? Christ-like people. It's massive, eh? And I think as a church, we're to be a sent people, eh? And and apostolic people. And being sent isn't about being a missionary necessarily overseas going from one location to another. But as ambassadors of the kingdom, we're all to be missional in our thinking and being sent from heaven's perspective and operating system and way of doing things here into the earth, eh? Having an, an influence in one another's lives because of what he's done in us. eh? Um, So the last question that I have for the evening um, flows on from that. Just one second. Which is, what can you expect to see demonstrated in the life of someone who is poor in spirit? Uh, Basically, the, the true riches manifest in their lives. What we were talking about before, this blessing, which isn't... You know, like what we talked about. That's a that's a living reality. So when the squeeze comes, life turns up. When uh, they are persecuted for righteousness' sake, they can rejoice. You know, when um, when they are reviled against, they don't revile. You know, that kind of thing. So it's basically the manifestation of Christ in their life. So this word that we read is becoming flesh in us and being evidenced in the world around us through the receiving of this. Um, for me, it's ongoing revelation of him. And so we, we all know that we can't move anywhere. We can't grow without God revealing himself. So for God to reveal himself, there is a posture that you have to have. And that posture, you can't make yourself have it. And that's the, pos- the posture of being poor in spirit. Because a beggar is poor, not only is he poor, he knows that he's poor. And so it's hard for a lot of people to accept that, you know, to accept that we are born dead in the spirit, um, to accept the truth that we are utterly helpless without him, that we can't love, we can't serve, we can't do anything apart from God. There are only two, th- you know, you could, you could say, Lord, I know nothing and I can't do anything. And those two things are the stumbling blocks for for us, like for people in the world who pride self-sufficiency, you know, to be self-reliant and so on. And that's also the stumbling block for the Greeks who, who pride in knowing a lot of things to say that we can't know anything apart from the Lord. And for the Jews who pride that they can serve, they can, they can be righteous in their acts and to say that we can't do it. Because God, I think, if you remember the time, the first time that you met him, 
you know, the first time that you, he gripped your heart and, you know, you, you cried out to him in, in your desperate need and he was there, he came to, that's the first time you met him. Um, he, he's, he told me, you know, that is the place where you should always be forever. You should never depart that. You know, the state of your heart at that very moment when you cried out to him, that would be the state of the heart you should always be. And that will be the place, the wellspring of revelation. It will always be there, your revelation. Because the, we, the, the thing is, we go away from that path. We leave that position from time to time. But that is the position to always be. And, and, and I think no matter how great heights he brings you, you know, if he brings you, you know, great heights of stuff, a person who has encountered Christ will know where he comes from and where he's going. And I think the, the, I love that. The, the way that we enter in is the way that we are to continue, hey? You know? So, do you have Does anyone have, does anyone have questions for the panel about being poor in spirit or anything that we've talked about tonight? Um, so, does the being poor in spirit connect? So, when in Second Corinthians seven, when Paul says he writes a letter to um, the people and it makes them sorrowful, but he rejoices because he says it makes them sorrowful to the point of repentance. Is that sorrow, that same poor of spirit that Christ is talking about in the Beatitudes, or is it? I guess that other message that you were kind of touching on, Greg. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's a sorrow because you're being awakened to a reality of your need to be changed. So this is what, this is what the true gospel does. So the gospel, before it can build you, it needs to break you. That's why people hate it, Yeah. <coughs> And this is why you have to be ready for it, because up until that point, I wasn't ready for the gospel until I was 29, but it was in my life, because Jesus was coming in my life. So my spirit was full of pride, it was full of me. I needed to hear something that was going to smash that, because that hard heart was keeping me out of the life I was predestined for. So something had to come into this heart, create godly sorrow, not I'm sorry, Okay? but Because uh, I've been sorry for nine years and walked away. So it was a godly sorrow that pierced that, broke, that, that hardness, obliterated it, and made me turn. I, uh, it's, it's not even something, it's like it's happening all at once because of the word I received, the power. And it created such a godly sorrow that I repented and actually God came and filled. So the, the, the vase that was full of pride got shattered and I got a brand new vase. And that's where my walk started, which is the position that Noel's, you know, never leaving there. And I haven't left that place for 22 years because it's guided my life because I, you know, he brings me back there and says, remember, remember, remember. 
And so that's what Paul's saying. He writes this letter and it creates a godly sorrow. Now that same word that pierced my heart is the same word I constantly now receive in the new vessel. So where it pierced my heart, now it builds my heart. And it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds me. Because the kingdom, that word is associated with the kingdom. And the kingdom life is now being built in my heart and my mind. So now I have the, I'm becoming more and more like the mind of Christ. I have the heart of Christ. And so I live from that place. So yeah, it, it's the word creates the godly sorrow. The godly sorrow leads to repentance. And then life is associated with repentance. And then, that, you know, and then it's about living from repentance. So my mind is continually renewed. I get a brand new mind to his mind. And I live. And I think in these verses, they're letters written to the church. They're not, this is not an evangelistic campaign where he's talking to non-believers, you know. And so when he's saying that, that you're, um, you know, made sorrowful but sorrowful to the point of repentance, he's not talking about praying a prayer and having your sins forgiven and being sorry, you know, for that. He's talking about what, what Greg is, I, primarily I think he's not talking about just that. He's talking about the way into life which comes through repentance, you know. And as a body of Christ, we can hear a message that makes us sorrowful in the negative sense if it makes you feel insecure for where you're not, you know. But that, to me, that highlights you haven't been, you haven't reached the point of repentance because repentance leaves, leads to life and not to a sense of condemnation and and death, you know, and the gospel is dividing, and it will either do one or the other. It will, it will produce true repentance, leading to life, and a changed way of thinking, and a way of changed way of seeing, or it will make you feel, see your lack, and lead to insecurity based on the way that you receive it, you know. So, um, there's a really cool example I was reading of um, someone who was living a righteous life, and then in the process found true repentance and emptiness you know brokenness of spirit and it's it's job so i don't know how many people have read the book of job but he's this guy who is righteous he's keeping the law he's doing all the right things and then these things turn up in his life and he starts to have a go at god because he's righteous he's like i'm righteous god how are these things happening to me and and justifies himself rather than god and then um the last few chapters of job God turns up and he has this conversation with Job and starts to open his eyes to see and he has this real encounter. And at the end of it, it's titled Job's Repentance and Restoration. And he's had this this massive encounter where his eyes have been opened and he's really empty of self. He says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have spoken what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. And this is the, the real kicker for me. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then this process of this new life comes into Job where he's built restored more than he ever had and and it came through this brokenness this true brokenness 
I, I just think if, if you think of what we talked about before with David, what didn't David know before Nathan came to him? What was it? So, so he he didn't. I mean, he wasn't writing what he wrote before something happened because he's unaware of his inner state, isn't he? So he has no knowledge of his inner state, and he commits this act, still not having any knowledge of his inner state, until a word comes from the most bravest man in the Bible. <laughs> Nathan the peacemaker. Imagine that. Noel, you have to go and tell Greg <laughs> that he's done something wrong. And Greg's a warrior who cuts people's heads off. Like that. So the level of humility that's got to be in here because his own life is on the line. But he loves me to come and tell me something to help me because I'm caught in something I don't know I'm caught in. But he does and God does because God gives him a word to bring to me to hopefully pierce my heart. But my decision I'm about to make is going to determine whether I come into something I don't even know exists within me. So he's writing from a place that he didn't even know about until it happened. And this is part of the thing. It's, like it's very hard to even, because you know, like the mind's trying to land the plane somewhere and it's like actually... Are we fully aware of how dead we all were? In view of God's mercy, do we have a concept of the mercy of God that we were all predestined to a place called Hades until he awakened us to him? And in view of God's mercy because of what he's done, because you see how evil you all are and how far away you all are from me, that I had to come and rescue you all. In view of God, that when you see yourself in the true light of who you were and you still love, and that pierces through the brokenness, sorry, pierces the heart and heart, you fall. And then he picks you up. And he says, let's walk together. And there's a dimension in the spirit. See, all this is in the spirit. This humility is in the spirit. You can't conjure it up. You can't even think you are. You know, doing acts of service doesn't mean you're humble. You might do those because you need to do them because you don't know who you are. But at the same time, you might do them because you are humble. And you'll be found out either way at a period of time when you're tested. But this is so deep. And it's something you can't find. And it could be something you're even unaware of. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he's not covering you. But it does mean he wants to go deeper into you to release you from you. And it's not that we go looking for these things. So I'm not saying go on a rabbit trail now and go, oh, you know, I agree. Just start living. But ask yourself, is there a life coming out of me? Is there a source coming out of me? Is there substance? You know, because all these things are the substance of Christ. No different to love, joy, peace. Are you finding yourself year after year changing? And if the answer is no, I'm the same person, but I'm doing more? No, are you changing? Do you find yourself being patient more? Being able to love people more? Having the joy? Then you might want to ask the question of you and the Spirit, and maybe someone else, and just walk it out together in love and let Him show you.
if it's there. Don't create it. Don't stress out. He loves, but there's a depth to this that he wants to do within us, which will free us from us. And that was the thing Peter had to go on, wasn't it? And we've talked about this, and I'm going to continue to talk about this. But Peter could walk on water. Peter could cast out demons. Peter could preach the gospel. But what Peter couldn't do until God did the work in Peter that he did in Paul and Peter and Job was he could not love and he could not deny. And until he got a broken down man inside of him through the going through what he went through and denying when he said, you're going to deny me, and then going to an upper room, he couldn't, couldn't live the life he was predestined to. But with Christ who led him, because Christ knows all things, he then could. And you've got to go through that transition. Great question, Amy. Anyone else? Last question. Last question for the night. No questions, none at all? Cool. All right. Noel, are you happy to, to pray for us, mate, and we'll, we'll finish up? Lord, we just thank you for tonight. We thank you for bringing us together and for your spirit that is in us and with us and around us. We thank you for the words that you've spoken. And I ask that you know the words bring life to each and every one of us. Bring life in the inside, Lord. Let it grow, let it blossom, let it bear fruit for the greater glory of your name. Oh Jesus, thank you for you have created a way to the Father. And it's the way through the eye of the needle where we have to kneel down and we have to let go of everything that hinders us, Lord, and to go into this way. Keep us always poor in spirit. Remind us of the place that where we came from. And also remind us of the place that we are bringing us into. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a fantastic week, and we'll see you back this time next week.